0: Before, I kind of was giving you an overview of the class, sort of giving you an idea of what we'll be dealing with, what we'll be asking, what we'll be trying to answer in this class. Um, But what I want to do today is I actually want us to go to the Garden of Eden. Uh, I would love for us to actually go there, but instead we're going to go there in our, our hearts and minds. And we're going to look back at Adam and Eve as they existed before the fall. And so I want you to see something, though, as we look at the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden represents worship (coughs) under what we call the covenant of works. How many of you are familiar with this terminology, covenant of works, covenant of grace? Um, Covenant of works, um, you, well, actually, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna spell it out for you as we go along. Um, The first human beings were worshipers by design from the very beginning. Here are Adam and Eve, they are in the garden, and they are meant to be worshipers. Um, And they are found in the Garden of Eden. And just as an aside, uh, think about where they're worshiping. They are in this garden, a place where who? not just Adam and Eve dwell, but who else dwells in the garden? God is in the garden, right? God dwells in the garden. Um, do you remember, you know, the, the Jews were very slow to make images of things in heaven above or on earth beneath. And yet if you went into the temple, what were on the walls inside of the temple? Who remembers? What kind of decorations did you find? You found plants, you found fruits, you found trees, basically the imagery of a garden right inside of the temple. And so there's something that God is communicating even there because he tells them to put those images inside of the temple. Um, What is he doing? He's he's actually taking them back to the very first temple that ever existed, which was the garden. He's taking them back to the garden. And so in a sense, in the garden, you have a temple and in the temple, you have a garden. Uh, there's just something very beautiful there. There's something that really illustrates what God is trying to get at with this man and this woman. Here he is. He's placed them in the garden. Yes. God dwelt in the garden? Sure. Yeah, God he. Means like you, you I, I don't think that you would say his own lo- only location was in the garden, but he certainly walked in the garden. He certainly was present there. Yeah. Um, and you would say that about the temple as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And and then when he does leave the temple, um, is it Zechariah? In Zechariah, he departs the temple and it's a huge deal. Yes. So um, his absence from it is very much felt as well. So, yeah. Uh, doesn't Schaefer's book, Art in the Bible, go into great detail about the decorations between the temple and that kind of thing? Can you repeat the question? Oh, he just asked if Francis Schaefer talks about that in his book, Art in the Bible. Uh, the answer is I don't know because I haven't read that. So, Haha, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have found my limits. Uh, <laughs> there are more of them. Just, just you wait. Um, but that's just almost as an aside. Just think of that Adam and Eve are in the garden. They are in this place that really is, a, in a sense, a temple. And you're going to see more of this in a little bit. But they're placed there, they're, they're made in the image of God, they have the design, they have the capacity, uh, and they have the desire to communicate and worship, communicate with and worship the creator. This is just built into them. Um, the question is, how are they supposed to do that? How are they supposed to worship him? How are they supposed to worship God? Um, how does God expect them to worship him? Does it even say in the text? you you might be surprised to know that God actually called Adam and Eve to worship them, worship him. Um, and we don't often think of what God tells Adam and Eve in the garden as a call to worship. And yet he does. He does give them a call to worship because what does it say in Genesis 2.15? It says, God spoke and called Adam to worship. How did he call him to worship? The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, he puts, Adam and Eve in, he puts Adam in the garden and he gives him directives. He, he basically says, you can do the thing you were made to do by working this garden. That's how you can worship me. And so the first command of worship that we explicitly see Adam given is a command to worship God by keeping the garden and working the garden. And there are other implications of this as well. Um, Jonathan Gibson, again, in that, the big book, the book that's gonna get passed around, hopefully to all of you, he says this. He says, actually, Adam is meant to serve in a threefold office in that garden. And he says, Adam is meant to serve as a prophet, a priest, and a king in the garden. Here's what he says. As a prophet, Adam was to speak God's word to God's world. As priest, he was to guard God's divine sanctuary and mediate God's blessing to God's world. As king, he was to rule God's world. So he has, these, he has this greater task before him than I think we sometimes think of when we think of him as a garden, uh, as being in the garden. And then he said, as God's son, and in his specific roles as prophet, priest, and king, Adam was called to worship God through his word. When he says that, what he means is you're supposed to listen to what God told you to do and you're supposed to obey it. So God's word is like the thing that mediates his worship. He's supposed to worship by doing whatever it is that God tells him to do. So he's supposed to listen to the command. He's supposed to obey it. And then he's supposed to enforce it. He's supposed to enforce it in the garden where he's been placed. That is a mission. That mission is God's call for Adam to worship. Um, And then Jonathan Gibson says it like this. He says, it was a call to adore and acknowledge the goodness and greatness of God, a command to know God and enjoy him forever. That's what Adam is called to in the garden. He's being called to enjoy God, know God and enjoy God forever. And all of this is part of the covenant that God makes with Adam, right? And it makes him different from the animals, right? Because he doesn't give the animals this command. Uh, It's something that makes Adam Adam of all the the creatures of the garden, Adam stands out. Adam is different from all of them. And oftentimes what we call that is we call it the covenant of works. Adam has been given a mission and he will fulfill it if he does it. If he does what he's told to do, then he's going to fulfill the covenant of works. All of this though um, points to the fact that worship is achieved, how? By obedience. He worships God by obeying. And now when we talk about the garden, you know, I don't think we normally think of what happens in the garden as, as a liturgy, but in fact, Adam does have the first liturgy in scripture. Uh, he's given a call to worship, and then what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to respond to that call of worship by obedience, by love, by devotion, and then what happens as a result he may eat of any tree in the garden except for the one that's forbidden to him, right? He gets to enjoy this fellowship meal with God. He gets to be in the garden eating with God. And so what we have right here and what I've drawn out for you here is the first liturgy that we have in the Bible. Uh, Adam is called to do these things. He's called to answer what God says. And then guess what? He gets to dwell in peace in the garden, enjoying the goodness of what God has given him. Uh, and he does it alongside of the Lord. Um, He's born to be a worshiper. All of our worship to one degree or another throughout all of history is going to follow this pattern. The, the rest of the time in this class, you're going to see that worship follows this pattern. God calls us, we respond, we enjoy fellowship with him. And you know, throughout the church, church history, a uh, fellowship meal has been a way that that unity and that fellowship has been expressed. Think about it, in the Garden of Eden, they're eating from the trees, in Israel, how are they doing it? They're doing it through the meals that take place at the sacrifice, right? When you give a sacrifice, these meals involve the priest and it involves the worshiper eating together. And the idea is you're eating in the temple, you're eating in the presence of God. You're having a fellowship meal with God. But what has to happen first for you to have that fellowship meal in the in the temple? A sacrifice has to happen. So we're going to get into the fact that our worship, this worship uh, liturgy has to be added to eventually, and we're going to talk about how it gets added to. Micah. I remember when I first heard this, it was a big jump for me yeah. to go from hearing um, Adam being told to tend and keep the garden to saying that's called worship. Because that's, that's not the... It's not the language we today use for a call to worship generally. Uh-huh. Um, it was, and so I, I wasn't following the argument. I didn't fully buy in. Until it was pointed out that that language of tend and keep is the exact same language that is given to the Levites in their temple duty. So when it talks about what the Levites are supposed to do, they are supposed to tend and keep. And So the language of their work is actually pulled directly from Adam's original work. What do they do? They tend to keep the temple. They tend to keep the... Uh, oh, escaped, the it, garden. The, the tabernacle. Mm. Um But, but that same language is picked up on when Moses tells them what they're supposed to do. Oh. That's helpful. Thanks. Thank you. Um, this, this is... so, so think about this. So this, this takes place, of course, in the garden. It takes place in Israel in the temple. And now how do we enjoy this? It takes place when we have the Lord's Supper. So this is something that persists. This, this pattern is something that still persists. Um, so this forms the skeleton of worship. This forms the skeleton of how God's people end up worshiping from Adam all the way up to Revelation. Um, and so hopefully we'll continue to see that as we go through this class. But one of the things that of course we know is that this worship is interrupted, Right. Um, you're in Eden and we do not know how long Adam and Eve enjoyed the fellowship that they had with God in the garden, but we do know eventually that that it gets broken. What happens? The serpent comes into the garden and he introduces a foreign and counterfeit worship, the kind of worship that never entered into God's mind that they should do. And Satan says, listen to me, not God. And so what do they do? They listen to this call to false worship the serpent gives them an alternative liturgy that still remains in the world today. And what is his liturgy? His liturgy is, you know, live your truth, be who you want to be, exalt yourself, love yourself over God, and Adam and Eve buy it, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, they yes, John. I like the skeleton. I, you know, from my perspective, that's the first I've you know, the first I've heard what what you're saying about. It. Uh, worship being called to work and be obedient but that skeleton to me is just it's amazing because without that skeleton it's been missing forever from my perspective and wow that's just that's really cool i'm glad (coughs) anyway i'm glad light bulbs light bulbs yeah light bulbs for me too by the way that's why i found that book so helpful um but think about this: um, Adam and Eve they they enter into this false worship, and you know obviously we're not. I'm not even talking about the doctrine of sin. There's a huge subject here we could talk about, which is the doctrine of sin and what it's done to Adam and Eve and to their worship. But I just want to focus on one thing. Johnny Gibson calls this a liturgical disposition that Adam and Eve and their descendants now have. So now when they go to to worship, instead of saying, hey, I'm going to respond to God, what do we do instead? We say, but what if I listen to the call of another? What if I go off in another direction? What if I listen to myself? What if I listen to the voice of the world around me? What if I listen to anyone but God and how he calls me to worship? Mm -hmm. And so often we say yes. You know, we say absolutely. Mm -hmm. And um, every single one of us have a tendency to worship things or ourselves over God. We need to think of our life in uh, in terms framed by the subject of worship because that's what we do every single day. Every single day, we make choices about what we're gonna worship, who we're gonna worship, who we're gonna put first, who we're gonna listen to, who we're not gonna listen to. Um, are we gonna obey God and worship him only? Are we gonna worship ourselves? What will it be? So that is the new hitch that gets thrown into what Adam and Eve were called to and what they did, or at least for a season, what they did. Um, But now instead, when the fall happens, something new takes place. We now have worship under what we call the covenant of grace. You heard a lot about the covenant of grace today in the sermon. we are talking about baptism. So what happens rather than destroying the man and his family, God introduces the covenant of grace immediately after the fall. He doesn't destroy them. Now what happens? Worship takes place through the mediation of sacrifice. Adam and Eve, there's no place for sacrifice in the worship in the Garden of Eden, right? Is there there any need for it? Absolutely not. There's no need for a mediator. There's no need for someone to come in and, and fix it because the relationship is whole at that point. And so now worship takes place in the context of grace, whereas before it took place in the context of their obedience. Um, Now the message is God will receive you and God will deal with your sin through a sacrifice. And that's how they're able to still approach him. and what this immediately does is it introduces a shadow that's one day going to find its substance in Jesus. So it's a very long shadow, right? The the first sacrifice. Can you guys think of where the first sacrifice in the in the Bible takes place? Keith, I think it's when God slayed the animal to clothe Eve. So you have Adam and Eve in the garden, and what does God do? The text doesn't just say he clothed them, but it actually makes a point of where the clothing came from, right? He didn't just like, you know, make it from cotton growing in the garden or something like that. He specifically says that these are, this comes from animals. And so you have this principle of sacrifice introduced in genesis chapter four and so the principle of sacrifice becomes an element of worship that makes it possible for adam and eve to continue to live and to continue to answer the call that god gives them to worship him and the message that comes through to them when that sacrifice takes place is god receives sacrifices for your sins you live through the death of another One day there's gonna be a perfect sacrifice and Satan's head is gonna be crushed. An innocent animal dies so that you can survive, so that you can stay clothed, so that you can be warmed, but understand that's still just a shadow of what's to come. And then if you look at a study of the ancient world, one of the things you find is just overwhelmingly nearly all cultures or societies or religions after the first man and woman are cast out of the garden, what do they do? You see this element of sacrifice persist across all of these different cultures this sense that the gods want something from us that we're supposed to render them something that we 're supposed to give them something we're supposed to give something up so even if even in Greece where they're worshiping rocks and stones and they still have this sense that they're supposed to give them a pinch of incense you know or you go to other cultures in the east and you find animal sacrifice taking place um, you have or worse yet, you have the Canaanite cults where what are they doing? They're sacrificing their own children. Um, why? Because they believe them as give something costly to the gods so they can find favor with them. Um, so as twisted and perverse as the worship of all these different cultures ends up being, it still grows out of this same seed, right? This this seed of what takes place in the garden, right? Right. Uh, Cain and Abel, what are they doing? They both have a sense that they're meant to bring some kind of sacrifice to God. And there's a kind of sacrifice that he's pleased with from the flocks. And there's a kind of sacrifice he's not pleased with. You know, he's not a vegetarian. He doesn't want those, those plants. Um, and so you have this added element of sacrifice that has to happen before a fellowship meal. And so um, to be honest, I'm, I, I think I'm gonna put it above response, but just barely, um, this becomes the new order of worship. And, and I want you to see this, especially, um, especially in uh, at Mount Sinai. So, you know, we're fast forwarding a long way through history and we could look at the whole history of sacrifices if we wanted to in the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis. And you still see them taking place. But fast forward, you've got the children of Israel. They've been rescued out of Egypt. They've been brought to the foot of Mount Sinai. And then you have a pattern of worship that God gives them at Mount Sinai. Now, if I could, I'd put in front of you just an outline of chapters 19 through 24 of the book of, of Exodus. And you'd probably be really blown away to see this order, but here's what happens. In, in Exodus 19, 1 to three, they gather at Mount Sinai. So God's people are all together. And then in uh, verses three through nine, there's a call. God calls them to worship him at the foot of the mountain. And then there is cleansing in verses 10 to 15. And then there is mediated access through the prophet, right? Moses is going to go to God. He's going to be our go between. Why? Because we're so sinful. We need someone to talk to us because it's too terrifying to to see him face to face. Then what happens? Chapter 20 to chapter 24, God preaches a sermon. God brings his word to them and he speaks to the people as they're standing at the foot of the mountain and they hear what he has to say. He gives them the 10 commandments. He gives them the book of the covenant. They receive instructions. And then we have consecration that takes place in chapter 24, a sacrifice that takes place in chapter 24. God speaks again. He gives them the book of the covenant in chapter 24. And then there's cleansing, there's blood, there's a burnt offering. There's, there are peace offerings that are sprinkled. And at the near the end of chapter 24. And then finally, they have mediated access to God and there's a fellowship meal with God in in chapter 24, verse 11. I hope you recognize, even though all that sounds so complex, I hope you recognize this is the outline that they're following. This is what's happening at Mount Sinai. God God preaches to them, God ministers to them. He gives them his word. Um, and they're meant to respond and he knows they're sinful. And so what does he do? He brings cleansing and washing and atonement into the picture in the way that Israel ministers in the way that Israel is ministered to. If you look at you don't have to go there because I'm not going to dwell there. But if you go to Second Chronicles five to seven, you have Solomon dedicating the temple and the fall and the, and it follows the same order. It follows the same structure The people do all of these things in this order. It's almost identical when Solomon dedicates the temple. So notice here, though, that the pattern of Eden is still what they're following. But obviously you have this element of sacrifice and cleansing that takes place now. That brings us to another part of Mount Sinai, and that's the ceremonial law. Because what you have in what you have in Israel is, of course, these purity laws, and, and it's, this is like one of the things that we think of most when we think of Israel. When we think of their worship, um, we think of we think of purity, right? We think of um, uh, uh, cleanliness being uncleanly. So, Adam, yes, used the word atonement in relation to sacrifice. I'm going to talk about what that is. Yeah, I used the word, didn't define it. Um, if this was a big board, I would just draw another arrow, but instead I'm going to do this. <laughs> so um, in Israel, um, think about this. Adam and Eve were never afraid of being impure right before the fall. You know, they're, they're in the garden with God and there's no thought about what's holy, what's unholy, what's pure, what's impure. They're just They're just there. And they're just meant to live with the Lord. But then you get to Leviticus 10.10, and it teaches us that after the fall, animals, objects, and people can be in one of three ritual states. They can be impure, or they can be pure, or they can be holy. Everything is one of these things. And um, ritual impurity needs to be removed so purity can be restored impure things defile holy things so if something is impure if something is unclean i'm using those words interchangeably if something is impure or unclean it can't come in contact with a holy thing if it does then it defiles the holy thing and so someone can be pure and partake of the fellowship offerings which are holy as long as you're pure as long as you're not impure you can participate Do you see what i'm saying so we're, you know, the Old Testament is very much structured around, the ceremonial law is structured around, how can we stay in this state so that we can come into contact and fellowship with God? That's what, that's what the book is constantly talking about. And then if you read Leviticus, guess what? There are so many things that can bring you over here. So many things that just happen in the natural order even. Sometimes stuff that's not even moral. A woman menstruating, impure, Right. She didn't do anything morally wrong, but it's still, it's just a part of life in this fallen world, and so it's gonna interfere. Um, but to participate in a holy thing, you have to be purified. Holy things and pure things are made impure by contact with that which is unclean. So if you something is made unclean, it needs to be made clean, it needs to be purified by a sacrifice. And so God in his law, what is he doing? He's consistently infusing in Israel This sense of just how impossible it is to keep yourself clean and keep yourself pure from sin. Um, He is consistently demonstrating for Israel this need to be washed from uncleanness, to be forgiven for your trespasses. How can a holy God dwell in Israel's midst? How could they dare to approach him for anything, let alone worship? The answer already raised it I've already talked about it but now we're going to talk about it a little more um, by the way I'm just barely skimming the surface um, we probably could do a whole class on Leviticus and it would be extremely eye-opening um, but the answer is atonement the Hebrew word for this is Kippur so um, Yom Kippur it's the day of atonement if you've ever heard of Yom Kippur that's a day of the of atonement that's what that's what Kippur means it is a Sacrifice on behalf of a guilty party to an offended party. It's a sacrifice from a guilty party to an offended party. In whole or in part, the sacrifices were burnt on the altar. And the intention was to turn away the wrath of God and to honor the Lord as a form of worship. So giving these sacrifices was a form of worship It was one of the elements of worship. Um. <clears throat> The thing you should understand and appreciate is that all of the sacrifices, and we're gonna, I'm gonna very briefly address each of them, but all the forms of sacrifice that you had in the Old Testament find their ultimate conclusion in Jesus. So you could actually look at all of these sacrifices that I'm about to mention, and you would see how they terminate in Christ, that they take us to Jesus and he fulfills them. So one book that I think is great, I think it's very helpful, uh, I don't know if it's still in print. This looks so old that I can't imagine it's still in print, but maybe they're still making it. Uh, I hope they are. It's "O oh, Come Let Us Worship. It's by Robert Rayburn. There's a Robert Rayburn in the Pacific Northwest Presbytery. This is his father. So this is Rob Rayburn Sr. And this is a wonderful book on worship. And it's still great. Uh, I really don't see any need to write a new one. They, they just need to print this and give it out to everybody. So I'll send that around. You can take a look at it. But in there, he goes through the different sacrifices, and he shows how each of these sacrifices points to Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to skim by so we can keep, the, keep the, um, the pace going. But the first kind of offering that we, we have is in Leviticus 1, and it's the burnt offering. Uh, the purpose of the burnt offering is atonement. Uh, it is to restore the relationship between the worshiper and God. Uh, the uh, assumption of the atonement, the assumption of the need for atonement is that our sin separates us from God and we need to have that relationship restored. So how do you do it in Israel? You take your sacrifice to the temple and the priest kills it, sprinkles the blood. And then there is a burnt, there's a burning that happens. Really it's cooking, right? They're cooking the food. Um, They're cooking the whole thing on the altar. the sacrifice gets split up. Some of it gets shared with the priest. Some of it gets shared with the worshiper. Um, but that's the way that burnt offerings were done. Um, think of it as food. I mean, they season it too. I mean, there's it's, it's cooking. Um, there's a meal offering. Some some of these have more than one name. Um, the grain offering is another one. You might've heard this one called the grain offering. And it's basically, let's bake some bread. Um, that's what they do. They bake some bread Uh, They bring it in and they give some to the priest, which he eats. Um, This goes along with a burnt offering. So if you're giving a burnt offering, you also bring a grain offering too, or you can bring a grain offering. Um, And it it actually can accompany any of the offerings that are given. And so the purpose of this is to sort of highlight the offering. Like I'm bringing this offering and I'm kind of, I'm improving it. I'm making it more. I'm adding something to it. I'm amplifying the, the offering that I'm giving. And so what am I doing? I'm bringing some bread to go with the meat. Um, there's also a peace offering. Um, the peace offering is shared between the worshiper and his fellow Israelites. So there's this is very much sort of, I don't know, there's, there, there's hints of the, the Lord's Supper here. There's hints of the meaning in the Lord's Supper here where there's not just a vertical restoration between us and God, but also I'm sharing it with others too. That's what the peace offering was. Um, by the way, this is Leviticus 1 through Leviticus 6. If you just read Leviticus 1 through 6, you can Get more on each of these if you'd like. Um, There is the peace offering or the sin offering. What was this for? This was for atonement for a specific type of sin. Um, And it also offers a metaphor for for purification. So there are a few purposes to this offering. And then finally, there's a trespass offering. What was the point of that? Another name for this is the reparation offering. Um, It was atonement for specific types of sin, a metaphor for compensation for wrongdoing. Um, so you're, you're basically saying, Lord, I'm repaying something. I'm repaying some way that I trespassed another person, uh, or against the Lord himself. Um, but so you can see these offerings have a lot of purposes for a lot of different reasons given during a lot of different seasons. Um, but here's the thing, the prophets are constantly reminding Israel, that the offering itself was not of value if it wasn't accompanied with a contrite heart. Right? That's why they keep going back to me. They keep saying, uh, I hate your offerings. Your offerings stink because you're just giving them and then you're going out and, and sinning and you're acting as if I don't really matter. Um, you're supposed to be sorry, but I don't see the fruits of repentance in your life, Israel. And... So God is looking deeper, and he's looking past just the sacrifices to what they mean and whether they mean anything to the, to the worshiper. And this is a lesson for Christians today, right? Um, our liturgy, our singing songs, um, these things are important, but we shouldn't just settle for that. We shouldn't just settle for, well, I said the words, I showed up, I stayed for the sermon. Uh, I'm not sorry, but I did stick around, so I should be good, right? And I think God would warn us and say, do you love me or are you just here because you think you're supposed to be? And you know what? Sometimes we do just show up because we're supposed to be. But we should be warned by that, right? If that's our state of our heart, we should, we should hear that from God that, that he wants more from us than mere attendance, right? He's, he wants us to go deeper. Um, now. All of this, right, is just something that was totally foreign to Eden, right? If you'd gone back to Eden before they were cast out and you'd say, hey, we're going to, have to do all this stuff. Adam and Eve would just say, what is sin? <laughs> Let's go back to that. What's sin? And then you'd try and explain it to them. And you'd be like, it's that thing that that guy wants you to do. <laughs> that's, what's, that's what's going on here. All of this would be so foreign to them. And so our own sin, though, and our own uncleanness has done this. And what the purity laws were doing is it was holding up a mirror to us so that we could see that we were not well. So our ancestors living under the Old Testament, the the uncleanness laws, the ceremonial laws were communicating something to us. All is not well. Don't pretend that because you can't think of some major thing that you've done – that everything is fine here. You need to see your own disobedience. You need to see your need for sacrifice. You need to see your need for cleansing, see your need for a mediator. So that doesn't stop though at Mount Sinai. Um, what happens? There's a spiral of idolatry in Israel. Let's see if I can do this in the next five minutes. I think I might be able to. The um, so long story short, the story of Israel is a very disappointing story. Um God receives the worship of Israel and and even worship in the tabernacle and worship in the temple because he had, it was a gracious arrangement. Um just know that they did not have a 50-50 relationship between God and Israel where where Israel's giving and God's giving and we're all working together here. Um think of the history of Israel as God dragging the most disappointing people on the face of the planet through a desert into a place where he calls them to worship and then they, they don't even really wanna do it and he, he's picking them up like we at Bernie's and he's saying, okay, now you're gonna, is anyone a weekend into Bernie's reference? Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's picking them up like weekend at Bernie's and he's like, worship me, and and they, and he's bringing these these dead bones to life. But it, there's just nothing from them in terms of their own spiritual strength. He's doing everything. He's he's keeping them alive. And so when you see when you think of of the the worship of Israel, just know that even even the. The height of Israel, we think of the height of Israel probably as when the temple of Solomon is built. And even that is disappointing because what happens? Solomon builds high places for Chemosh and Molech. He's building high places for the false gods. He's building high places in the east. Interestingly enough, he, it specifically tells us in the text that he builds these high places for false worship in the same direction Adam and Eve fled from the garden. I don't think the narrator is, is noting that on accident. They want you to know. There, it is significant, the pattern, where they're building these places for false worship. And then under Manasseh, the idolatry uh, comes back in unblushing full force. Just listen to this strong language. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Israel, I will put my name. And he built altars of, I love the condemnation in the narrative. Like they're just, they hate what they're writing. And he yeah. built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the, in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done before whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Um, it's like, gee, tell us what you really think of Manasseh, uh, whoever the narrator is. <laughs> he, they were worse than the other nations. Um, Josiah repairs the temple, tries to bring reform, still can't stop God's wrath. Eventually they're thrust from the, from the presence of, the, of God. Literally, I'm gonna quote from Second Kings 24. It actually says the Lord cast them out from his presence. Can you think of where else that language got used? In Genesis, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. And what does he do? He casts them out. He uses the same language. Where does he cast them out to? Which direction do they go when they get cast out? They go east to Babylon. Um, When Israel gets cast out of Zion, they get taken to Babylon. They go to the east, just like Cain fleeing from God's sentence, just like Adam and Eve fleeing from the garden. Israel, is, is Adam failing in worship, failing to love God, being cast out of God's presence? I could keep going on, but I want you to start seeing when you're looking at the Old Testament, you are looking at people who are failing to worship. They're failing to put God first um and then here 's the amazing thing though, failure after failure after failure, and then Malachi the book of Malachi ends with God promising that he 's going to come himself to the temple and he 's going to res- purify the sons of Levi and he 's going to do what he 's going to restore right worship to israel that 's that's i just that 's the best cliffhanger ever um, the way that the the, the Old Testament ends. It says, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So the Old Testament ends on this promise. A sacrifice will happen. Restoration will take place. True worship will take place as part of Israel's life. In other words, Eden is coming, but first a savior has to be born. And so that is such a cliffhanger, but it has to be, it's the right place for us to hang the cliff. So... (laughs) What what we'll do next time is we're going to look at Jesus, the perfect worshiper. We're gonna look at Jesus and see how he restores right worship to Israel. And then we're going to transition into talking about the synagogues. So we're gonna have a little bit of a jarring transition. We're gonna go from Jesus. Then we're gonna hit rewind and ask, how did they worship in the synagogues? And then we're gonna come back up to the New Testament time and talk about Jesus. So um, normally I would just end on Jesus, the perfect worshiper, but... Eh, we just don't have time and I don't want to rush past Jesus so just feels wrong yeah. so instead we will uh, we'll pick that up next time but let's let's close in prayer uh, heavenly father you are so kind to us that you don't leave us guessing what pleases you instead you tell us in your word that we should worship you that we should worship you only i pray that we would love your glory and that we should that we would love your worship and that we, would, that we would despise that what lacks in us, the things in us that miss your worship, the things in us that don't obey your call to worship. And I pray that you would make us real worshipers, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the Lord Jesus in whom we don't have to be afraid that we're impure. We don't have to fear that we're unclean. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, we are righteous and pure and clean in your sight. And so we thank you, oh God, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.